the whole Bible can be divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This starting point is critical for us because if we don't quite have that in mind, we might miss the entire point of the arguments that our author in Hebrews makes pretty much from this point till most of the rest of the book. There's a time period break that goes from the earliest days of human history, the beginning of time, up until the coming of Jesus. And that time period coming from the point of Jesus until now. In fact, many of you know that our Gregorian calendar, that's named after Pope Gregory XIII, the Gregorian calendar was designed in the Julian calendar that preceded it to break all of history into B.C., before Christ, and A.D., that's, uh, that's after death. I remember being told that when I was a kid but it's Latin for the year of our Lord. All of history is broken down in that view. And that's actually a right way to look at it because it really is the, the dividing line between two major eras. Our Bible depicts these eras by the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you probably see that in your Bible. You might even have a, a kind of interim page like I do that says New Testament when you get to that part. When we get to Matthew. During Jesus's day, and shortly after, there were many people who did not know or realize that a new and better testament or covenant had been established. This means that it was the job of the first believers, the first generation of believers, to make their way around the world and tell people that everything had changed. That we are no longer under an old covenant, but now we have a new covenant. Can you imagine what that would have been like? That it was their job to establish the case first with Hebrew peoples, Jewish people, those who had an Old Testament, had reference to an Old Covenant. It was their job to convince those people that that Old Covenant foretold of Jesus who would establish a new covenant. The first believers proclaimed this truth because it was so critical for us to be clear about. If a person were to say to his Jewish neighbor, hey, hey, time to reject the Levitical priesthood, time to reject a time of temples and sacrifice, time to reject an entire Old Testament, throw all of it out, we've got something new. Those people would absolutely think that they were blaspheming against God and against his word, that they were blaspheming against the law. And so it was critical for those first believers, perhaps even more so than today, just because of time that's passed and the knowledge of the gospel spreading, for the people in that day to make a clear case from the Old Testament why it is that we now have a new one and how those two operate with one another. The author of Hebrews has pointed us back to the Old Testament figure of Melchizedek. And he's done this since chapter 5. We're in chapter 7 today. He explains that Melchizedek is a priest. He's the first priest in the Bible, performing priestly duties even before the covenant of circumcision, the Mosaic covenant were established, even before the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision was established. He does not fit into the Old Covenant system. He was an awkward outlier with an asterisk, a priest with a footnote. And that was the point of the text that we covered this last week. To show that even before the old covenant was put into place, God provided a mediator to stand between himself 
and Abraham, and therefore all of Abraham's descendants. Melchizedek and his priesthood precedes and even supersedes the Old Covenant. That was the point of the entire first half of the chapter, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, that we covered this last week. So the question for today needs to move past the one that was answered then. The question today needs to not just go, who was Melchizedek and how authoritative was he, to what does that guy have to do with Jesus? If you were to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7, Jesus doesn't show up, not, not explicitly show up. And so if the case the Hebrews author is making is that we are under a covenant by Jesus, he just told us all about Melchizedek, well then the, 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 the hearers, the audience might rightly say, okay, got it, fine, fine. There's an old covenant, Melchizedek character, sure, fine. He's higher in authority. He precedes and even supersedes the old covenant Levitical priests. But what does that have to do with this Jesus? And that's the question we have to answer today. And just to make it clear right off the front, Jesus supersedes the law. And that's what we're about to see today. I want to go ahead and read through the passage. I'm going to just pray that God will give us clarity on it. And then I'm just going to go um, see how far we get for today. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll couch whatever we don't get to today until next week and beyond. Lord willing, let's pray. Let, let's read and pray. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Let's pray. Father, we have already seen a chapter earlier, even two chapters earlier, a caution and a warning that we would, we would need to take notice of these things, not be dull of hearing, but do our best to, to focus, to grow, to mature, that this would be clear to us, that this would make sense as to why it's so important that we see that Jesus supersedes the law. So Lord, we are asking a supernatural thing when we ask for your help every time we come to the word. So God, we do that again today. Let us honor you by submitting to what you've said and by letting it teach us that we may honor you, glorify you, and love Jesus more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11. 
Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? All right, let's establish what's, what's going on here. Let's take a quick look at this. This whole section contrasts two priesthoods. In the Old Testament, God entered into a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Abraham would have Isaac, Isaac would have Jacob. And, and if you know the Old Testament history, you might remember that Jacob was renamed by God and he was given the name Israel, which means struggles with God. Israel had 12 sons. It's from these 12 sons that the 12 tribes of Israel descend. Levi was his third son, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. It was his third son. And God told Israel that it was from the tribe of Levi that the nation of Israel would get its holy workers. Those who dealt with the holy things, the things regarding ceremonial priesthood and, and cleanness, ritual, all of those components of the law. Levi's most famous descendants were Moses and his brother Aaron. It's a little bit of the family history there because you need to know that it was during the days of Moses that God established a priesthood officially for his people. And it was the household of Aaron, Moses' brother, that was given the responsibility for being the priests. This is important because there is a Levitical priesthood. That's just kind of short form for the sons of Aaron, his descendants who would be the priests those who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people in that day. Now again, look at verse 11. It says that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. That's the whole premise. If it was attainable through the Levitical priesthood, perfection, then there wouldn't be need for anything else. You may have heard people say that there's an idea of becoming perfect and more perfect and more perfect. Nonsense. Perfect means that it cannot be improved upon. Anyone who says that God is perfect, but he may become more perfect, misunderstands what perfection is, that nothing higher can be attained. There is nothing greater than perfect, especially when we consider the nature of God. But the word perfect here has a slightly different meaning. Some of you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that's the language that the Old Testament was written in. But by the days of Jesus, even a little bit before the days of Jesus, the dominant language of the people in the Mediterranean was Greek. And so there was a translation from the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek so people could read it. That translation now we refer to as the Septuagint. In that Greek version of the Old Testament, the same word perfect is used but it's used in connection with the priests being made perfect for their tasks. Or some of your Bibles right now, if you read it, would be consecrated for their tasks, anointed for their tasks. So the word perfect here is really not thinking about a moral perfection as much as it is a ceremonial preparation for the holy work that they were designed to do. Consecration, anointing, but there was a major problem with this kind of perfecting, this anointing, this consecration. A problem that's so obvious that we know without even thinking about it, but it's helpful to put words to it. 
The problem with this perfection is that it didn't perfect anybody. It only dealt with outward signs and not inward transformation. It was kind of like Jesus saying, uh, you can clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is still filthy. In fact, we see this on broad display in the Old Testament, right out of the chute with the Aaronic priest. That was Aaron and his sons. Aaron had four sons. His oldest two were Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 8, they were explicitly consecrated, anointed as priests. They were now functioning as priests. But their very first priestly duty goes poorly. I want to read you quickly from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, it's a ceremonial object, and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So you see, in the very first priestly duty, by these consecrated priests, those made perfect on the outside, their first recorded act was their disobedience before God to the point that God killed them in the sight of all as a testament, a symbol that you may not worship how you want to worship, but how I have commanded for you to worship. This means that the weakness, that the ineffectiveness of the Levitical priesthood gave occasion to another greater one. I want to read to you a quick quote by commentator David Allen on this exact idea. He writes this, The external ceremonies of animal sacrifice and the placing of blood upon the priest for consecration merely symbolized transformation, but was in fact powerless to bring it about. They did not make perfect the priest. For this reason, a new priest is needed. This is what was meant why that phrase, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, you wouldn't need another one. But we know that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, a new and a better one needed to be drawn upon. Quick question for you. Who were the ones largely charged for the killing of Jesus? The Levites. The chief priests is the term used in the New Testament over and over. The high priest himself who would command the slaughter of the Messiah, the one who himself had been made perfect by these Old Testament signs, the one who himself had been consecrated, anointed to that task, and clearly was filthy on the inside. That priesthood was utterly ineffective in bringing about perfection that was necessary. Therefore, we needed a greater one. Verse 12 tells us, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, just because I think it'd be helpful if you're studying this yourself and you're looking at that verse right there, you're going to see the word for show up right in the front. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. If you were just to read through this and circle the word for 
in your English versions as you go down there, Gar in Hebrew, in Greek, just go down through all those four languages. What you're going to find is that there are seven of these in a row. This whole passage is making one big point. And each of those seven four statements serves as a rung in a ladder that builds us up to the climax that we'll eventually reach in, in verse 22, which itself will be built upon again. We'll get there in uh, later weeks. So here's the first one of those fours, the, 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 the thing upon which uh, the preceding part is built. There is a change in the priesthood, a change in the law. You see that? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The Hebrew hearer must get this. All his life, he's expected that the law and the priesthood cannot change. There's no way that can change. It has to remain. But here the author says that it must, it necessarily must change. And notice the order here, and this is critical. It is not the law that changes, which then necessitates a new priesthood, but the other way around. So two things we see from this right here. First, from a new priest will come a new covenant. It's not the other way around and that matters. We're not waiting for a new law, but we're waiting for a new priest to establish the new covenant. Remember, it was under the Levitical priesthood that they received the law. It said that in the verse prior. They should not be looking for the new covenant to establish a priest, but for a new priest to establish a covenant. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he died? when he established the Lord's Supper that last night before he'd go to the cross, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, holding up the communion cup. There's much more on new covenant and what that all means in coming weeks. It's, this is the place to find it in the book of Hebrews. The word covenant uh, shows up in the book of Hebrews more times than it does in the rest of the New Testament combined. We're going to uncover this as we continue on. But Jesus established a new covenant and it was him coming in that priesthood first that then ushers in the new covenant, not the other way around. The second thing that this is saying to us is that this better priesthood replaces the old one. It replaces the old one. I need you to listen very carefully here because if you've ever heard it said that a person can hold an Aaronic priesthood and then add to it a Melchizedek priesthood, this utterly obliterates that idea. The new one resins, supersedes, overwhelms, changes, abolishes the old priesthood. This means that now that Jesus has arrived, the Levitical priesthood and the law that established it is no more. It has been canceled. You and I or any other of God's people will never again have a son of Aaron intercede on our behalf. That old way has been permanently changed. It has been upgraded to a new and better way. In fact, you know what the duties of the sons of Aaron are today? To make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. That's what the Aaronic priests would do today. If they could prove their lineage to Aaron and they would say, what is my duty today? Make disciples. 
So many religions today have priests, even high priests. Lots of religions have priests. But there is only one true priest, and his name is Jesus. I wish our neighbors could see this. No wonder the priests in Jesus' day so hated him and hated his coming. He put them out of a job. Jesus' coming pushes man out of the spotlight and men hate getting pushed out of the spotlight. When Caiaphas, the high priest, stood in defiance of Jesus, the real high priest, what was taking place there was much more significant than two men arguing and battling it out. The true priest had come to replace the old. The true priest complete in righteousness and holiness, perfect in justice, was in a mocking sense, standing before that who had given up all righteousness, forsaken true justice, had lied and cheated in order to try to deceive people into doing what he ought not have done, killing an innocent man, his own Messiah, no less. He was greatly threatened by Jesus, and he should have been. You and I, we need a priest. We have to have a priest. We must have a priest who can provide peace with God. You can't have that without one. You can either have Jesus or you can have a man. You get to pick which priest you want, but you can't have both. This means that your pastor, me, any other pastor that you ever know, he's not a priest and ought not be called one. A priest is one who offers sacrifices on behalf of another and there is no such thing as a bloodless sacrifice. We'll get into that in future weeks. Our priest, Jesus, has come. And in his coming, he has necessarily changed the law. Notice here, you may already be thinking this, but if you reject Jesus as your only high priest, you will inevitably seek righteousness through Old Covenant. Those go together. And you'll seek it through old covenant means rather than new covenant means. You can't have the new covenant while trusting in and relying upon Old Testament, old covenant priests, old covenant law. In other words, you'll try to follow the law instead of relying on God's grace. This is precisely the concern that Paul has throughout the book of Galatians. You might remember if you know that book that Paul was dealing with an issue in the church. They were people who began to assume or think that it was appropriate to add requirements of the law into their new spiritual relationship with God. And in so doing, they began relying, that's the key problem, relying on works of the law rather than Jesus. Galatians is a ferocious rebuke against that idea. I'm gonna read for you two verses. Galatians 2.21 Paul writes, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, you can become righteous through, you can't become righteous through the law. It is not able to make you perfect. It can only clean the outside of the cup. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of law and do them. And you and I have never and will never, it is not even possible for us to do all the things that have been commanded by the law. 
Jesus summarized the commandments of the law, didn't he? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those first two great commandments, how are you doing on those? You and I have failed on those every moment of our entire lives. In our most pious, in our most selfless, in our most holy and God-honoring moments, when sin feels the furthest from us, we have not given God the love that he rightly deserves, even in those moments. You and I have not fulfilled the Old Testament law, never could. And therefore, we would be under a curse if we relied on our ability to follow those things. So choose today who you will follow. Jesus as your only high priest or anyone else. Verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken, it's Jesus, belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Quick reminder, only those in the line of Aaron, remember he was a Levite, could be priests. That means anyone outside of the line of Aaron, no priest. You can't be a priest outside the line of Aaron. In fact, anyone today who would even try to say that they can be an Aaronic priest would have to prove biologically that they could be one. God ordained that his son would not be born to a Levite family, but he was born to a family of Judahites. Judahites. Now, I think that at least one of the reasons that this is the case, why God didn't just have Jesus born in a Levite household, why not just have him born in that way? I think at least one of the reasons that this is the case is so that there would be no mistake that he was abolishing the Levitical priesthood he was fulfilling it, annulling it. If Jesus was a Levite, in other words, people might be more likely to wrongly think that the old covenant was still in effect, right? Well, we have a Le- well, he- so we used to have a Levite priest. Now we've got a greater Levite priest. How much more ought we abide by all the law as a means to be justified? Hebrews 8.4 says, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. If Jesus did not resurrect, ascend into heaven, if he was still on earth, if his bones were still on the ground, he he would be nothing because the priesthood of the Old Testament would continue on. Jesus, quite simply, did not qualify to be an Old Testament priest. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing because he's in the line of Judah. And what was it about Judah that was so special? It was the line of the kings. David and his descendants were from Judah. The book of Revelation will say that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of Jesse, who was a Judahite. Just as Melchizedek, you might have remembered from last week, was a priest, king. He was a king and a priest. Jesus himself will be a king and a priest. Verses 15 and 16 say, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The clouds came. I got hours more to preach now. I'm excited. We're going to get through this. Clouds not that big. big. (laughs) He says, This becomes even more evident when another priest arises. What does he mean by more evident? What does the author mean when to say that? Here's greater proof, greater evidence that what I'm saying is true. Well, first, 
the author showed the weakness of the Old Testament priesthood, which he's actually going to do again. But he made the point that the priesthood was unable to make perfection attainable. Not even the holiest ones, the set-apart ones, could be made ultimately perfect. Not even the priests. How much less those that they dealt with. Now he shows something about Jesus that makes it even more evident, even clearer, that he is greater than the other priests. Namely, indestructible life. He raises from the dead. It seems to be a little bit of a kind of play on words, a slight metaphor, because drawing on Melchizedek in the Old Testament, it was said that he didn't have father or mother or anyone who, who came after him, no successors. You, you could kind of say tongue-in-cheek that, that, that he, he didn't have any successors, that he didn't have anyone who preceded him, that, we, that they didn't exist. But here we know of Jesus, that is certainly the case. The Levitical priests were chiefly qualified by their lineage, but the Messiah is qualified by the fact that he has no lineage. This is why people said of Jesus in his day, we don't even know who his father is. They rightly drew on that same idea because he didn't have an earthly father. That's kind of the point. The high priest in the Old Testament received his priesthood from his earthly father and passed it along to his earthly son. That's how it happened. Bloodline, biology. An Aaronic priest could not pass the priesthood to anybody else unless he was born to him. That's the way that it worked. But Jesus did not receive his priesthood from an earthly father, nor does he pass it along to a son. None before, none after him. And even more so, and I think this is even that kind of point that, that just amplifies what, what a big deal this is. Jesus is not dead. He raised from the dead. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. And he's the only one then of whom it could be said that he, is, he has an indestructible life. You can't kill Jesus. Look, we tried. It says this about him. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now this may seem subtle, but I think it's very significant. We've already seen a few times the term order of Melchizedek used. The order, the priestly order of Melchizedek. That could certainly imply that there could be many Melchizedek priests, right? But here we see that what the author intends to convey is that Jesus is in the likeness of Melchizedek, not just the order. That the idea of a multitude is not what's in purview here, but what's in his mind is that he's in the likeness. If you look at Melchizedek, things like him will be true of Jesus and even more true. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, that's cited from Psalm 110 and it's spoken of a singular individual. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You, the one who in that same psalm is called the son of God. You, who commands the angels. You, who sits in all authority. You, Jesus. You, Messiah. You are the one who has this priesthood. Jesus alone has indestructible life. Again, this is yet another thing that makes his priesthood unique. 
not just the fact that he alone will be the Melchizedek priest, but that it was simply foretold in the Old Testament. There's Old Testament prophecy of a specific individual who would bear this Melchizedekian priesthood. The Old Testament tells one will come and his name is Jesus. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, says that again. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So look at these words here. He says, the former commandment is set aside. That former commandment is the, the legal requirement for priesthood based on genealogy, which we already covered. That was the former commandment and that's set aside. Genealogy no longer matters because we have the one and only priest. It is set aside. That word there literally means annulled, removed. If you're wondering where I could get the authority to say that that Levitical priest, the Aaronic priesthood is abolished, right here, these words say they were set aside, annulled, rescinded, rejected, no longer in operation. That priesthood has been fulfilled by Jesus. It was intended to last for a time. It was intended to hold on to the people of God until the one true son would come. And now that he's here, step aside, Levites. I've got it from here. It says that that priesthood was one of weakness and uselessness, specifically because it was ineffective to satisfy the wrath of God and to provide peace between God and man. So the Levitical priesthood is no more. Hebrews 7, 20 and 21 says, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You see, under the old covenant, Aaron was singled out by name. He was declared by God to be the high priest. Hebrews 5.4 makes mention of as much. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. But Aaron's successors were not singled out by name. They were not promised by God to perform their priestly duties. And they were not promised that they would exist and live forever holding that priesthood. In fact, it was expected that they would die, stop holding the priesthood, and pass it along to those who followed them. But Jesus has received his priesthood by God's sworn oath. What's more, this oath was not a private conversation between God and his son. It was declared to the world in scripture, written down by David 1,000 years before Jesus. Unlike Catholic popes, LDS prophets, God himself declares who will be his forever priest. And he proclaims it to all the world in his word that we would all hear. Friends, there are many religions who have private councils and after the council convenes, they come out and say, we have now decided who God wants to be the next chief leader. This is not the way the Bible did it. Every one of us can open the word and hear what was proclaimed from the rooftops, who God declared to be the one and only high priest, Jesus. It's not done in secret. It's done for all of us to see. So quick review here, especially for those who might come out of an LDS background or spend a lot of time with their Mormon friends and want to help understand how do we deal with this conversation of Melchizedek priesthood, which is a, a major component of the Latter-day Saint movement today. 
Why do non-Latter-day Saints have a problem with the Melchizedek priesthood? Why is it that we see that this is not something that's founded biblically? Here's a quick summary of why. Let's answer the question, the qualifications of a Melchizedek priesthood holder. What would a person have to have in order to be a Melchizedek priesthood holder? First, he'd have to have no record of an earthly father or any successors. Second, he'd have to not be an Aaronic priesthood holder. Third, he'd have to have a sworn oath by God called out singularly, individually, that this one will be a Melchizedek priesthood holder. Fourth, it must be foretold by scripture that the man would hold this priesthood publicly attested, universally available. Show me where it says you can be a Melchizedek priesthood holder. Is what we might be able to ask. Number five, he must be a priest forever. For the priesthood holder, apostasy would be impossible. For a person to say, I am a Melchizedek priesthood holder and have the possibility that he may leave that faith in the future proves without doubt no one who can possibly apostatize could be said to be a Melchizedek priesthood holder. And sixth, he must have an indestructible life. He must have resurrected from the dead if his days have passed. Any man in the past who had claimed to have held this priesthood, you show me that man's grave and you can be certain he did not hold the Melchizedek priesthood. But there is one man whose grave is empty. There is one man whose bones are not where they should be in an earthly sense, but they are seated at the right hand of God, the only true Melchizedek priesthood holder that exists, our Lord and Savior Jesus. We have not arbitrarily set ourselves against our neighbors in this regard. This is so clear in the Bible. You just read these passages and say, we have a high priest. We have no need for another. That's the whole point of this this chapter in Hebrews. It's for those who previously thought they needed another priesthood to go, we don't need any other priesthood. We have one priest. And his name is Jesus. And this whole passage culminates and finalizes here in verse 22. This is the the point. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's the whole point. All of this that he's been building on, this, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You want the old covenant? Why don't you want a better one? Friends, in every possible way, the new covenant, every possible way, the new covenant is an improvement on the old. There is not one way where we'd say, yeah, that, that was a little nicer about that. It would be nice if we could have that part. Zero. Nothing back then compares to the new covenant today. This is the whole point of the chapter. Everything that he's been saying so far has been building to this point Even the extended rebuke and the warning in chapters five and six circle around this point. I have something so important to tell you. I want you to know that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. It is better. It precedes and it supersedes your old covenant. That old covenant is done. We're gonna see in the next few chapters, it is abolished. It is gone because it has been fulfilled by Jesus. No more need of that one. And his concern is that we might not hear it. His concern is that people might be clinging to an old covenant, a system of law. I will make myself righteous by doing the right things. 
He's concerned by that to the point that he's saying you're not maturing to the point to know this is in Jesus. This is a new and better covenant. You can either have the old covenant or you can have Jesus. Stop trying to work for your righteousness and rely on him. There is a critical purpose for the old covenant. There are ways that the old covenant truths today still serve us. But they need to be known in the right place. I'm eager to show you the con continuity of old covenant into new and, and to show you the discontinuity, the places that are not the same today that were the same back then. I think it's the point of the book of Hebrews. And I'm eager to get to that in the next coming weeks. Let's close in prayer as we ask God to help us understand these things. Father, this morning, there's so much more to say even about this passage. I feel like I'm flying over top of this as quickly as I can. God, your word is true and it is sound and it just hammers for us over and over and over and over again. We need Jesus, not those old priests. He is our perfect and only prophet. He is our perfect and only priest. He is our perfect and only king. And no book in the New Testament does it quite as clearly as the book of Hebrews to make that clear for us. Father, I pray that we would embrace these things. We would love these things. Lord, if there's a part of our thinking that, is, that has been edging out these ideas, that has been, has been situated in such a way that we're not quite seeing the fullness of Jesus clearly, Lord, I pray that this word would do exactly what it's designed to do. Help us to not be dull of hearing. Help us to soak it in and, and, and embrace and celebrate in Jesus as our guarantor. Lord, help us to acknowledge it, not only for ourselves, but to preach it and proclaim it to others exactly as this author of Hebrews is doing for his audience as we read it. Lord, help us to declare to others the, the need to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation and not on dead works. Father, help us to, to seek to do what is right, to do good works as an acknowledgement of who you really are, and that we are secured in Jesus alone. Lord, help us to find the right balance in how we think about and talk about these things. Lord, we live in strange, strange times, and we need an extra measure of help as we try to process through the things in our world right now, answer hard questions for ourselves and even our friends. Lord, I pray this blessing on this church that as we leave from here, we'll be able to see so clearly that if you don't start with Jesus or anything else, then we've entirely missed it. Father, we love you. We praise you for the gift of your son. Help us to see him as chief. Help us to see him as supreme, as ultimate, as final, as complete, as all that we need. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.